I'm Mandy Ralston. I'm a behavior analyst, and words are verbal behavior. Hi, welcome to the Writer's Rotation Podcast. I'm your host, Kathy Stamps. I love words and writing and people and talking. So I'm talking to people who write all kinds of things in different professions. It's a writer's rotation. How are you doing? Good. Thank you. So what all has happened in your entire life? (laughs) We'll just start there. That's easy, right? You and I met, what, 10 years ago, probably? You wrote an article. Yeah. That was... 2017. Okay, great. So yeah, that was when I was nominated the second time for small business person of the year, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And so since then, I have sold my clinic, Verbal Behavior Consulting, was sold to Blue Sprig in 2019. And they were the fourth largest autism service provider in the U.S. at the time. And so the the Lexington Clinic, as it's now called, uh, is still up and running here with their management. And I spent about three years hanging out in the larger organization before I left last May and started Non-Binary Solutions, which is a new company. Yay. Right? So that was in 22 or 23? Uh, I started this you started in this 22. Week. And I love your, yeah, because there's no hyphen in non-binary. That's right. AP got rid of hyphens long time ago. <laughs> the world is just dehyphenated. Are, are you an Oxford comma person or no? So I'm a Libra. So the answer is um, sometimes it depends, but here's- I'm also a Libra. So yeah. Oh, that's right. So one thing that a lot of people truly, truly misunderstand, they think that Associated Press never uses a serial comma. And that is not true. They don't use one in a simple series, like red, white, and blue. Okay. But they do use them in all other instances where it's a long- you know, this, 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 comma, and the da-da-da-da-da, comma, and the da-da-da-da. They, oh. they use this here. But it is odd that a style book, which style is known for, first for clarity, always for consistency. That's what okay. a style guide is. Interesting. I've never heard that before. That's cool. I don't think I made that up. I don't think I did. I think <laughs> a teacher said that a long time ago. First for clarity, always for consistency. So yeah, why AP doesn't use a serial comma, I don't know. I don't know. Interesting. I do know that even Chicago, MLA, I'm pretty sure all of them, you don't use a serial comma with an ampersand. If you're going to use an ampersand, which you would not use in running text, but maybe in a headline or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. I had this discussion on another podcast with one of my colleagues who is anti-Oxford comma. And I was like, well, it changes the whole sentence of like- Sure. I want you meeting. to meet. Yeah, I want you to meet my parents, Cher and David Sedaris. Right? <laughs> and so, right. you know, if you, you don't have the right commas, then it sounds like Cher and David are your parents. Right. So, yeah. And your background is you have several degrees. Yeah, um, I got my undergrad degree at Center College in psychology, and then I waited for a while. I, I became certified as a behavior analyst first in 2002, but the original certification was a, an associate certification because I had just had the bachelor degree. And so I waited a while to go back to get a master's degree in education and then became a board certified behavior analyst, not just an associate back in 2014. So yeah, and then I just recently I did a data analytics course through Berkeley, which is why I'm wearing the uh, sweatshirt right now on top of the fact that's where my wife is 
where she moved from. She's originally from Lexington, but she was living in Berkeley, California when we first started dating. So, cool. so yeah, yay, Berkeley. Also, it's 175 degrees outside. So. Oh, but it's fine. just the constant hellscape of global <laughs> warming. Oh, mercy. Okay. Words. Were you a reader early age? Do you love reading? Do you love stories? What's your relationship with writing? Yeah. Um, I liked being read to a lot when I was little. And then I also had, um, you know, the old record players where you had the audio and then you could read along with your books at the same time. I had that. So I can remember like a lot of the Disney stories, like reading them and listening to it at the same time, which is probably how my brain got trained early on because I prefer audiobooks to physical books. It's easier for me to be doing something, especially driving or walking and listen and comprehend it that way than it is for me to have the words on a page. When I have words on a page, the older I get, the worse it gets. It seems that I typically will have to read the same paragraph over and over and over again because I get distracted because I'm ADHD is all get out. So I just got into audio, audible audiobooks through the library and audible. And I am 1.8 or two times speed. What are you? Yeah, it depends on what I'm listening to and who's doing the reading, uh, whether I like the sound of their voice. You know, for nonfiction, then I'll, I'll bump it up to like 1.5 or something. Just okay. To get on with it. Right? Okay. <laughs> um, but if it's, if it's fiction, uh, like David Sedaris, I love David Sedaris. I could listen to that all day long. And uh, his voice is already, sorry, David, high pitched enough that yes. I think if, if I bump the speed up, he'd sound like a cricket. Yes, so. an absolute chipmunk. Um, have yeah. you seen him in person? Yes, a couple he comes, of times. He comes around here all the time because yeah. Hugh is from Louisville, I think. That's right. That's right. Or yeah. thereabouts. Yeah, yeah. He's he's totally fun. Absolutely. So yeah, I usually have multiple podcasts or uh, audiobooks that I'm listening to to sort of, you know, as I travel, especially. I used to listen to a lot more audiobooks when I was first developing my clinic. Uh, there was no insurance coverage for autism treatment. When I was back in the 2003, 2007 period, when I was basically an independent contractor and I was driving to anybody's house that could afford me to pay out of pocket, right? So I drove about 35 to 40,000 miles per year going between Indiana, Ohio, and Kentucky. Just, you know, I'd be in my car for four hours a day, Monday through Friday, just going from house to house. People could afford my services. So a lot's changed since then. I'm but uh, yeah, I don't get to listen mm. to quite as many books as I used to. So. And what about taking notes to yourself, speaking them versus writing them? Would you do that on those? Visits? I write the notes. Yeah. Okay. I physically write the notes and I have, it all comes full circle, right? Okay. I have reverted back to printing things out. If I have to read like a journal article or something, rather than trying to read it on my computer, because in that case, like I need to see the, the physical thing. Because there's so much that we're doing on computers now that it doesn't live anywhere as a visual representation for me. So if I actually want to digest something like that, then it's a lot easier to print it out and read it rather than being distracted by all the bells and whistles and notifications on the computer. Right? Oh, interesting. And highlighter, post-its? Oh, I have post-its everywhere. Got a buffet of post-its. Ooh. Right. And all the different colors, too. Yeah. So what kind of writing do you do in your current, it's not a job, this is your career. Yeah, uh, a lot of my writing is related to social media. 
you know, sort of being my own brand and trying to drum up attention and get people to pay attention to what I'm saying as a, a quote unquote thought leader in my industry, you know, LinkedIn, I, I can't stand it. And at the same time, it's a tool that has to be used. I, it reminds me of like the high school cafeteria of social media. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> nobody's listening to anybody else. It's all performative. Oh know? my God, you're right. You're right. Yeah, I'm going to go on LinkedIn and talk about myself. I will never listen to anyone else. I'm just going to talk about myself. It's absurd. I think everyone does it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and what's, you know, I kind of lampoon the whole platform a little bit when I'm on there. I don't take myself so seriously, but because I'm a behavior analyst and because I specialized in verbal behavior, I'm uniquely aware of when people are talking, who their actual audience is, right? And so when you think about Skinner's analysis of verbal behavior, which is the literature that I specialized in, particular to behavior analytic research, Skinner's analysis of verbal behavior basically says that verbal behavior is behavior that is reinforced through the mediation of a listener, right? So when you talk to yourself, you are the listener. Wait, is it me or myself or I? Ah. Uh, There's a rap song somewhere in there. Yeah, but so when these folks are posting, it's especially in the comments, right? Like it starts with a post like, hey, I'm really excited that I started a new job today. And this is, you know, I'm getting started with Platypus and whatever the name of the company is. And and then the people that pile in on the comments are like, that's so fantastic. It's amazing that you're doing this. I, I would argue in most cases that performative commenting is not for the person that just got the new job. It's to signal to everybody else that, hey, I'm important. I'm involved with this person. This is part of my network. I have something important to say. I'm a magnanimous person. I'm, you know, I'm grateful for others' successes. I mean, it's it's like who benefits from that comment? I'm pretty sure the person that posted, hey, I started my new job, didn't do it just for Mr. Whoever coming and say, congratulations. Well, there's there's a little dopamine there too. Oh, or is totally. it serotonin? <laughs> no, it's, it's dopamine. You're absolutely it's dopamine. right. Dopamine yeah. is the more, more, give me more, more, more. That's right. It's the, the hit I don't, of the good I don't, feeling. I don't think it's good. I don't think it's a good thing. And well, social media is just a mess anyway, right? And, you know, again, like analysis of people's verbal behavior on social media, it's like when people get on and say, I have the most amazing wife in the whole world. Like, well, why didn't you just say it to your wife? <laughs> you know? It's like, I think, again, do you understand who the audience is when you make those types of posts? And so it's, it's a little, it lacks a little self-awareness and um, yeah, it's a thing. Obviously it irks me a little bit, but I, I play along too. So how much time do you spend with your analytics? With the analytics, like in terms of who's looking at me on my social media? Sure. Just like, oh, I posted this. Oh, I got this reach. Oh, I da 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 da. Well, it depends on which platform, right? So I say that LinkedIn is where you can find a vaguely professional version of myself. I'm not totally professional there, but it's certainly better than my personality on Facebook, which is nonstop memes, right? Which I love. I mean, you Thank just you. you set them up and they kick, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And so I absolutely don't take myself seriously on Facebook ever. Well, rarely. I won't say ever. It's kind of binary. So it's, it's always curious to me on Facebook, like what gets a bunch of likes or what stirs up a bunch of conversation. Like I had some posts related to Arby's and people lost their minds talking about 
the beef and cheddars or the roast beef sandwiches. And, you know, it was very polarizing. Either people love Arby's or they hated it. And it had like a hundred and some comments over Arby's, right? It's like, I didn't know if I picked a day where people just didn't particularly have anything useful to do, or if this really was a hot button issue, you know, it's just, it's, it's random. And then, yeah, same thing with, you know, I will look at what ends up getting a lot of traction or whatever on LinkedIn um, and try to repeat that recipe. Because again, the name of the game for my LinkedIn posts is again, trying to drum up attention and uh, awareness about the new software company that I'm building. So yeah, I want the attention there. Of course I do. I mean, it's self-marketing. So. Mm, of course. You're entrepreneurial. I think you were born with some entrepreneurial genes, if I remember correctly. Yeah. I don't know if you can blame it on the genes, but I'll take that. Um, so my father was the fourth generation owner operator of Ralston's Drugstore, which started in Weston, West Virginia in 1856. And so in 1856, West Virginia wasn't even a state. It was just Virginia. So it was pre-Civil War, right? So that, that was my great-great-grandfather, Er Ralston, E-R, which is a totally random name. But it was a jewelry store and a drugstore when it started. And then, of course, you know, going through four generations, it changed quite a bit over multiple years. But yeah, I grew up sitting in the drugstore in my dad's office and watching how all that worked. And that was one of my first jobs was being a cashier there at the, at the drugstore. It was just him and, and two other employees most of the time. Any desire to write stories about all the people that came in and try your hand at fiction? I, I, I have a desire to write something related to all the, the people and families and groups that I've worked with over the years, especially around autism and, and how we sort of got to this space. You know, when I, when I started working with people with autism back in 1999, the textbook that I learned about the diagnosis from had two paragraphs. And it said that the rate of diagnosis at that point was one in every 1,000 individuals. Today, the rate of diagnosis is one in every 36 individuals. Mm. And so I wrote a really short six or seven page white paper on what has happened in the last two decades that sort of caused this incredible hockey stick of a spike. But I could turn that into a much longer conversation about everything that I've learned in the last 25 years revolving around autism and psychology and applied behavior analysis, you know, because one of the things that I try to teach when I give talks to other practitioners like myself is that whatever you're doing today will likely not be best practice or even acceptable in five, 10, 15, 20 years from now. So you just better get used to change. So you better get used to the idea that things that you did in your past are no longer best practices and would be questionable in the future. That holds true for my, you know, years and years of, of work. You know, things that I did back in the early 2000s that were considered evidence-based practices are no longer um, appropriate at this point. And I think that's true of psychology, right? If we look at the history of psychology on a global level, there were terrible things done in the name of treatment and medicine and care. But all of those people were acting as caregivers that wanted to do good at the time that they were doing those things. So it wasn't with malice, hmm. but you have to evolve, right? And what, uh, keep... the DSM, how often is that even updated now? Is it four well, or five? Shoot. The last one came out, I think six or seven years ago. I need to look. But what's interesting of the last DSM is that it got rid of 
the sort of subcategories of different diagnoses other than just autism. So Asperger's is no longer a diagnosis. Oh. Often people are, are okay. more um, familiar with the notion of Asperger's versus autism because they think of Asperger's as quote unquote higher functioning individuals with, with autism type, type of characteristics. And so with the DSM-5, it looks like it came out in 2013. And so they got rid of Asperger's. They got rid of pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified. They got rid of Rett's disorder. And so all of those diagnoses now fall under this umbrella of autism spectrum disorder, which is not doing anybody with autism any favors. Because When is, when is the word disorder going to be changed? Oh, God, that's another whole talk show. Don't get me started on that one. Yeah, so there's a concept of neurodiversity that's now coming into culture, luckily, but that's got its own sort of consequences to what it does to individuals that have a, a proper medical diagnosis related to autism, right? Versus the TikTok self-diagnosis. Exactly. And, and it's like me, it's like I have ADHD. I now get to call myself neurodivergent based on that spectrum of neurodiversity. But because it's a spectrum, there is a wide range of the degree to which it affects your day-to-day functioning, right? And obviously I'm a pretty quote-unquote high-functioning person with ADHD and tend to be able to manage myself pretty well. I've run a couple of companies, et cetera. But for individuals with autism, on one end of the spectrum, you can have folks that are profoundly affected by their symptoms, by their diagnosis of autism, and may need care and support for their entire lives. They may be unable to communicate effectively. They may not be able to bathe or groom themselves effectively. They wouldn't be able to live on their own or manage their own money, et cetera. And on the far other end of the spectrum, you've got folks that get called into HR a lot at their jobs because they are perceived as being rude or highly rigid or whatever it is. And so all of those folks are sitting on the same diagnosis code, which is just nuts. Because can you imagine if uh, oncologists were just trying to treat cancer in general, Mm -hmm. never mind which kind of cancer? Right. Uh, and so that's the problem with lumping everybody in under this one diagnosis code of just autism. These are wildly different people. And so part of what I'm trying to figure out with the software that I'm building is creating some different behavioral profiles of the different types of people that fall under that diagnosis, because the person on this end of the spectrum does not need the same kind of supports that the person on the other end of the spectrum needs. And there's a lot of folks in between. So rather than just trying to treat it all as one monolith, right, I think we need to get more granular in understanding who benefits from what types of services and what kind of setting and for how long. And how do you see nomenclature changing? What would you like us just, what some words and phrases you would like us to start using right now? Stop saying this, start saying that. Well, that's part of my whole spiel is hashtag it's not binary, right? It's not binary. I, I tell people to approach language around autism, the same way that we've, we've been learning to understand approaching the language around gender, just ask the person you're talking to what they prefer. Because I know people that prefer to say autistic. I know people that call themselves audies. I know people that say I have autism. And so one of my spiels is just because you share a characteristic with a group of people doesn't mean you get to speak for all the people, right? You've got to let people and families choose what they think is right for themselves. And, and you don't get to speak for everybody just because you might have some things in common. So the, the, the non-binary solutions, hashtag it's not binary. The reason I named the company this is we've got three major points to it. One, that people are not binary, right? They're not ones and zeros. They're not black and white. People are shades of gray. 
And so solutions need to be shades of gray as well. Two, the founders of Apple, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, uh, had an argument at one point where Wozniak told Steve Jobs, you know, it's not binary. You can be both decent and brilliant at the same time. And then thirdly, when I get to tell this story in large groups of uh, investors for pitch competitions, et cetera, which are a pretty homogeneous group of folks and typically white male. uh, Yeah. So third reason is that I get to say, did you know that people on the autism spectrum are six times more likely to not identify with the gender they were assigned at birth? So it creates a space for empathy for non-binary people, right? Or trans people or whatever you want to call, because you can't hold those two thoughts at the same time. You can't say, I care about people with autism, but I don't care about these non-binary people because there is a significant overlap. So it was a very intentional choice with the name of the company. Uh, I've gotten feedback from a handful of people that they think I should change the name because it sounds like I'm doing something related to the sex and gender. And then once I give them that whole spiel, then they they understand it. So it's on purpose. It's, it's provocative on purpose. But I think Professor Skinner would be proud. Um, stimulus, response, repetition. No, stimulus, response, reactivation. Uh, Yeah, reinforcer. Reinforcing. I knew it was a re. Very good. I'm impressed. Where did you call that up from? I loved psych. I loved abnormal psych because I had a a professor with a blue eye and a brown eye, and I thought that was really abnormal. That was fabulous. (laughs) And um, I enjoyed Maslow. Yeah. A little hierarchy of human needs. Yeah. That was fascinating. And when I studied, it was so long ago in college. Yeah. That. Uh, there were three of them that were interchangeable terms, Psycho- psychopath, a psychopath, <laughs> psychopath, sociopath, and anti-personality disorder. That's right. Were were the same thing. And at that time, they had only studied older men in prison. Oof. Can you imagine? Yeah. That was like in the mid 80s. Yeah. I mean, the mid 80s was the DSM-3 or early 80s, yeah, I think. probably. And, and that was the first time, DSM-3 or DSM-4? I got to look it up. But one of those two was the first time ever that they had separated childhood schizophrenia from autism. Wow. Wow. So that's, that again, with the paper that I wrote, that's part of the point in seeing a rise in that diagnosis. I mean, it was rife with um, stigma to have that diagnosis years and years ago, right? And that stigma has been slowly eroded over time, thankfully. But we don't want the pendulum to swing too far the other direction where you're not, again, you're not paying attention to those individuals that have profound autism that are going to need lifelong support. They are not the stereotypical rain man that a lot of people think about when they think of uh, an autistic savant of some sort. Those are very, very few and far between individuals. Mm. But there there are quite a bit of individuals that have profound autism and will always need some level of support in their lives. Well, we'll keep up your good work. Well, thank you. I'll try. Do you have books coming out? Books? I think you should write. I will write as soon as I get um, the rest of this company off the ground and I have a little bit more room to breathe. Yeah, I think what I'll be able to do is is take the different white papers that I've been working on and chunk them all together into chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a, a name already in mind for the book. Cool. So I want to call it Clinic Confidential, sort of after Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential. So yeah, that's a goal. Yes. 
We'll be looking for that. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kathy. It's wonderful to see you. And you I too, really Mandy. love that you're you're doing this. It's fantastic. And uh, let's get coffee sometime. I'm on your board. We'll do it. Procrastinate. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Thank Thanks, you. Kathy. See ya. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writer's Rotation. Like and subscribe for more. And remember, writing is a marketable skill. Smiling is a remarkable skill.